1: Welcome to Cloudy with a Chance of Podcast with WHIO meteorologist McCall Vrydags and Kirstie Zontini. Remember, you can listen to Cloudy with a Chance of Podcast anytime you want on Apple iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and WHIO.com.
2: Welcome to Cloudy with a Chance of Podcast. I'm meteorologist Kirstie Zontini, And I'm chief meteorologist
3: McCall Vrydags.
2: Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, We are in the middle of February. Actually, it's about to be Valentine's Day as we record this. And it's going to be a bitterly cold. Cold
3: Valentine's Day.
2: Yeah, I don't think anyone's going to love the forecast this year here in Dayton.
3: No, not so much. I mean, this is, winter finally showed up. We did not have a winter. Literally, last week was like the first time we saw snow. Right, in a while. (laughs) Yeah, in a while, but consistently. Like, we had several little storms that came through. They weren't all snow. We had some mixed storms, but... Right now, outside of the station, we've got a nice coating out there.
2: Yeah, finally, it looks like winter for people. So um, as we are recording this, it was also a big week for the National Weather Service in Wilmington. Um, so I got to work on a special story, McCall, and, you know, you knew that I was working on this as well. Um, but one of the our local uh, meteorologists for the National Weather Service is not only a meteorologist, but he's considered an incident meteorologist. Mm-hmm. I had not heard of this before. You know, basically, we had seen on, I
3: think it was Twitter, and then we reached out. Have you ever
2: heard of what an instant meteorologist was? I've
3: heard the title, yeah. um, but I didn't really know much about, you know, the specialties that mm-hmm. go in behind getting that title. Yeah. So his name is John Franks.
2: And this week uh, was important because he's actually no longer at the Wilmington office for six weeks. He's now in Australia. So we know that they had a horrible, and they're actually still battling um, their bushfire season. Mm -hmm. It has burned millions of acres. Unfortunately, it's been deadly. People have lost their lives. And so as an incident meteorologist, they're used not only in the United States, but they have um, agreements with other countries if they need help. They basically have extra special training. So not only are they meteorologists with degrees and good experience, but they also have some fire training. So they go through like fire safety and some different modules. He had said so that they're able to forecast for fires, but also be safe when they're on Mm -hmm. a wildfire. So John has been out 14 times. Wow. So he's done 14 deployments. Most of them have been in the United States. A lot of them are California or out West for wildfires in Montana. And when he is out there, He legitimately embeds in the front lines. So he will work with a firefighter and give them very specialized forecasts. He said sometimes they send up weather balloons on their own, and it'll just be him, he said, a car, a phone, and a laptop. Mm -hmm. So when he goes to Australia, which he's gone now, he'll be there for six weeks. And that was a big undertaking, obviously, for his family. He has three kids. Wow. um, But also for the
3: local office, because they just lost a meteorologist. Right. And it's not like you just bring somebody in to fill his spot. They kind of have to just work extra hours and absorb. Yes. So, um,
2: you know, everything came together. He said where the office had said, you know, we can handle this if you're gone for six weeks. And for him, he, you know, he was answering a call. They need help. And he gets to be one of the I think he said
3: there's only about 80 in the United States that are trained for this. And that's an incredible job because when it comes to fires, weather plays such a big role on how they act Mm -hmm. from, you know, the wind direction. And how the fire is going to spread, mm-hmm. how hot is it, how yeah. intense is the, the fire is going to get, you know, are we going to get some rain, what is the best position for the firefighters to be in so that they're not in a dangerous spot. Yeah, They are obviously experts in fighting the fire, but, you know, then you have to have those meteorologists and their main focus is to make sure that those firefighters are in the right spots. Yes, Um, safety. And I I think some of your interview, and maybe you can expand upon this because we're gonna hear your Mm -hmm. interview that you had with him, is that as he goes to Australia, Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, he's going to add support. So perhaps he may not be necessarily on the front lines the whole time, but it gives the opportunity of the meteorologists that are there to be able to do that. And he's going to kind of like backfill support for them.
2: So that's what one of the things I had asked was, you know, are you nervous going into Australia with terrain that you don't know? Mm -hmm. And he said, well, what he will be doing is he'll be working at the basically Australia's National Weather Service office, so that two or three of their local Mets will go out into their bushfires. So, yes, he's still doing spot forecasts. Like They will be calling in and needing very specific Mm -hmm. forecasts that he'll be doing. But because he's going to embed and be national, their Weather Service office's MET, it will allow some of the local men and women to go out into the fields there. So it's kind of different. Like I said, when he's in the United States, he goes on the front line. He won't be in the front line this time around, but that will allow, you know, the, the meteorologists that have lived, you know, their whole lives in Australia yep. and know so much about bushfire activity and the weather patterns, um, this will allow them to get out. So it is a very interesting interview. It's kind of long, but um there's a couple very specific stories I don't want to give too much away, but when you talked about weather um, where he shares when he was on a fire once just how something had burnt, like the terrain changing and being burned to the ground actually fueled a whole other weather scenario that he was responsible for. And everyone's like, what's going on? So that's an interesting story. And then his um, kind of he talks about his family, which I think we forget, like that's so long to be away from your family. Um, so he explains how that's been in the past and how that can be a big challenge as well.
3: I'm really excited to hear your full interview. This is meteorologist Kersey Zantini sitting down with National Weather Service Incident meteorologist John Franks. Take a listen.
1: When the fires happen out west, uh, we go out there and we'll embed with the firefighters. So I I go out I'll bring a a tent, a laptop, and a a phone that allows me internet connection. And if they can supply me electricity, that's even better, but I can run it off of the vehicle that I'm in um, and provide them with a forecast and being on site allows me to take into account the terrain because the the, out there, you know, what may be a mountain in Ohio is not quite the same when you get out to the Intermountain West and the uh, weather patterns will be shifted around the the mountains and affect fire differently on different slopes that have different shading because the sun will come from east to west and you'll get different uh, points of time during the day and then you're dealing with... Uh, Upslope and downslope and up valley and down valley currents, and being able to process that from a computer versus being able to see it in action on a day to day thing because usually it's not just one area that they're working with, it's a large area with different uh, valley mm-hmm. uh, characteristics. So, being able to go out there, see where they're working, what they're doing, and, and talk with these people is important to get them the, the right weather that they need. And ultimately, this is to keep the firefighters safe. Um, You know, a lot of money is spent on these fires and and trying to keep them contained as best they can. And the uh, command and general staff that uh, are out there working at these incidents, their primary function is to get the fires contained as they can after they consider firefighter safety. And nowadays, you know, back in the day, they probably didn't have the meteorologists on site. Uh, But the IMET program has been around for quite a while.
4: What's the training that goes into? Because it's it's a little bit more training that's involved to be considered an IMET, right?
1: Yeah. um, Well, you've got your degree in meteorology, so you know how the weather works. Um, A little bit more experience uh, is good uh, to get some some weather under your belt. Now, out in Ohio, I don't have practice with the mountains and the whole nine yards. And uh, for some people, that might be an issue. But realistically, um, I go out there, and uh, the the training that we receive is an annual refresher for all firefighters that they have to take for um, safety, um, helicopter egress, um, fire training uh, for the shelters. Uh, we carry a, a fire shelter with us if we go to the uh, uncontained uh, fire line, and you know it's a last ditch. Thing that may be used if you get caught by uh, the fire, but you're never supposed to be in that position. But things go sideways uh, out there sometimes, and it is a fail-safe uh, that is not entirely safe, but uh, it is a last measure of protection that you may have. Kind of like an EF5 tornado bearing down on you, you want to get to the inside room with no windows. Uh, preferably, you want to be underground. That's your fail-safe. And if you don't have that, then our fire shelter is that interior room.
4: Wow. So I guess the extra training, besides being a meteorologist and having forecasting experience, is that fire training, like like as if you were a firefighter, basically.
1: When I go out there uh, and I'm on incident, I am treated and uh, and I am an emergency wildland firefighter. Yes. Now I am not accredited to do that, but we do have two IMETS out of our 80 that uh, do have the certification for. Uh, I believe it's a type two or maybe it's a type one wildland firefighter that they are able to go to the fire line in and of themselves. When I go to the fire line, I get minimal training. I don't have to take a, a pack test, which is a you know, certain uh, physical fitness test like uh, they do in the military. Uh, the firefighters do that. Um, I'm not required to do that because as you can see, my day is usually just sitting here looking at the, some yeah. computer screens. Yeah. Um, but the firefighters that are out there, uh, they do these tests every year. And um, if I go to a fire, I am attached with somebody that is responsible for keeping me safe and making sure that things don't go sideways. Um, It's usually the fire behavior analyst. And uh, we work side by side that my weather forecasts uh, are used in his products. And what uh, he or she would do would be to take that information, put that into their computer model runs and then the, uh, they take into account the slope that they're dealing with, uh, how the valley is laid out, what types of trees are there, the type of vegetation that this fire is going to come through and consume, and then the weather. So in the fire circles, there's a, a triangle, and it's topography, fuels, and weather. And the triangle makes up what's going to happen with the fire.
4: That makes sense that you are partnered with the fire behavioral analyst because yep. The way the wind is blowing, mm-hmm. uh, it drives the fire. Is there rain? Is there not? Yeah, yeah. Uh, all of those. I guess let's just specifically. What part of the atmosphere or forecast is most important when you're working with the firefighters?
1: It depends. Um, you know, each day could be a little bit different, um, and every fire you go to is going to be a little bit different. They offer their own challenges. In Australia, I'm going to have just me. Okay. Just just little old me. So. Uh, when I go out west, I will have a cell phone, a car, a computer, and uh, lately we have uh, our own weather balloons that we are able to launch. Uh, we'll order up helium. Mm-hmm. And with the helium, we have the rest of the equipment that we are able to use and launch our own weather balloons out there. So we can do a lot with a little. Mm-hmm. uh, But in Australia, I'm not going to be on a fire like that. I'm going to go and I'm going to embed with the local office like you would see here. I'm going to be working on a computer with uh, the same computer system, I believe, as what they have down there is called the GFE, the graphical forecast editor. And I will take over a desk that supports their fire uh, mission. Uh, Generally, from what I understand, it's going to be producing spot forecasts what happens and really across our country and across their country is the firefighters or emergency managers say "Oh, I've got something happening here I need a a forecast and they will go to the website type in what they have what they need and where it's at and we'll get an alarm on our workstation and we'll take a look at it we will take a look at where the forecast is and really hone in on that to make sure that things are are squared away and as correct as they can be Mm -hmm. and produce a spot forecast for that point. Now, in theory, you should be taking a look at the uh, smaller effects. that doesn't necessarily happen as, as uh, frequently out here, but uh, a forecast for the Dayton area is going to be different than the forecast for something in uh, Pike County or, mm-hmm. or Ross County where there, you've got the, uh, the river valley is more pronounced and you've got some outlying hills. Um, it's difficult to, to take a lot of that stuff into account, but the overall forecast is being pulled from our database. Mm-hmm. So we take a look at that. We provide them their spot forecasts. And we're able to interact with them, and they can give us more information. They can give us uh, in-field observations, and that's one of the things that when I go out onto my fires out here in, in the West or the East or wherever it happens to be, um, I talk with the um, observers and the, the safety person uh, for the individual crews. There's a 20-man hotshot crew or a 20-man, 20-person crew. They're one of those is pulled away and acts as a lookout to make sure that if something is going sideways on them that they can communicate that and tell them to hightail it out of there you know disengage and let something happen or you know let them know that things are changing um so they will while they're sitting there sling weather or they'll have a uh, uh a kestrel instrument that uh, gives them weather and they write this down and they broadcast that weather information to the crews that are working and i also get that
4: okay what about um so when you are getting ready i guess to go to australia you'll be in the southern hemisphere mm-hmm. so talk about a forecaster okay you don't have Oh okay, okay. Right. Um so when you are in the southern hemisphere, let's talk about some of the challenges or changes just mentally that you need to make note of when you're kind of working with these forecasts.
1: Well, I'm still in the process of uh going through some of this. Uh there's some training modules that I'm uh, in uh, the midst of trying to get that done along with a couple of reports before I leave uh, for our our buttoning things up at home, but uh the forecast, I believe, is in kilometers per hour and Celsius. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'll have to do some conversions, and I, I think I'll just have a cheat sheet yeah. nearby. Uh, you know, winds still go west to east, but the cold air is to the south, and the cold fronts look instead of curving in from, from, from the north and the, and the west, they're going to be curving in from the south and the west. So, it's a similar. But it's going to take a little bit of getting used to. And I, I imagine that uh, I'll get there pretty uh, pretty quickly. Yeah, I you know. have
4: faith in you. But it, a lot of people don't realize, or they just don't they don't think, like, you're not going out west, you're going to the southern hemisphere. which yes. it, it is. It's a different Yeah, season. and because it's
1: the southern hemisphere, <laughs> you have to drive on the left-hand side of the road.
4: And that's going to be the hardest part, right? Um, So your family, let's talk a little bit about that. Coming to the decision, um, I guess, were you notified and then you basically talk it over with your family of like, am I good to go or is this like just common knowledge now you're used to going out?
1: No. Well, Australia is is an entirely different beast and it doesn't happen all the time. I mean, we've had a a compact with Australia and the United States and New Zealand that, you know, in times of need, we send people back and forth. Last year, the West didn't have a real big fire season. Uh, They had two huge fires, the the camp fire and the car fire, and, you know, but those were late season. Uh, So a lot of the IMETs out West didn't really get as much under their belt this year as they did in years past. So there was no need to bring anyone outside assistance in. We have had more than enough for last year, but then there's other years where we're stretched thin. Mm -hmm. Um, Much like what's happening in Australia now, They're stretched thin, so me going out there is going to allow two or maybe three of their IMETS because I'll be out there for six weeks. uh, Will allow two or three of them to go out and engage and deploy with their firefighters on their fires with their crews.
4: Awesome. Okay, that's really what I needed. Yes. Stay there. Um, Do you have children?
1: Yes, I've got three: my uh, uh, my daughter Jessica, Juliana, and my son Jacob and uh, uh, Jacob is three years old and probably not uh, quite as understanding uh, of me and how long it's going to be. You know, if I go out on the fire out west, it's two weeks and might get extended to three. Um, this one is six weeks and might get extended to eight, but i um, pretty sure that uh, the season is, is turning and that they're not as um, hard-pressed as they were a month ago. But it's still, it's still a not good situation out there. It takes a time to recover from all of this stuff.
4: Yeah. What about um, some? Of the <coughs> are, will you be Pardon. there with any other um, U.S. men? Uh,
1: yes, from what I understand, uh, there's a meteorologist out of the Spokane that is uh, already there. Uh, he's Todd Carter, and one of our, um, he's been with the program for quite some time, and he's uh, it's a, a tremendous support with our, um, with our. Uh, Computer equipment, and um, and then I will be out there. And after I think a week after I'm there, uh, Heath Hockenberry is out of the Boise office, and he is going to be coming out there. Now Heath Hockenberry is our is our chief chief. No. Yes, he is the national program manager for for fire services. Uh, one of the few, uh, he might be the only one that is not chained to a Washington D.C. office because fire in the United States is out west, and he's got a special dispensation from, from them that uh, he's needed where he is to do his job effectively.
4: How important is uh, the IMET program in, in making sure that we have meteorologists like you and, and other men and women that are specially trained to be able to do this? How important is it something like this to continue on?
1: Oh, it's, uh, it's very important. Uh, They're, uh, you know, the the science is always improving, Uh, the computers and the technology is always getting uh, stronger and better. Um, The decisions that need to be made are going to be made by people. I'm at program as a whole, we've got, you know, 80 of us, Um, you know, you can't have everybody in the weather service, I mean there's a good amount of people. Uh, that the Weather Service employs and not all of them are are meteorologists um, and not all of them have the desire to do something like that because it's it may be glamping because I'm being provided food and and some uh, facilities sometimes uh, but uh, there are times where it is just not a very nice experience Um, so you roll with the punches. Sometimes you get a very nice dispatch. Sometimes it's uh, you know things could be better, uh, but much like everything else, you have to adjust and adapt to that. And finding the right people to fit that niche is important. Um, you know, and everyone isn't the same way uh, you know we're a tight-knit group I, I don't know all of the IMETS because a lot of our older ones have been retiring or we're moving on to uh, greener pastures with the uh, Forest Service or other uh, agencies um, but the uh, new people that are coming in I will see them at some point in time or another with uh, annual uh, every three years uh, we'll get out to Boise and uh, do some specific on-the-job training there and every three years one third of us get out there so they kind of mix things up and I know most of the IMETs that are there and it is a it is a family mm-hmm. much like our office here is is a family you know there's uh, you know forty or fifty of us here at the office and uh, you rely on these people to do your job and we're all doing our job at the the same time with the end result of the better forecast, the, the more accurate warnings, the, the better lead time mm-hmm. and messaging what's going to happen and how it's going to change and, and you know what the possibility of that change is. Yeah. And I wouldn't be able to go out and dispatch for two to three weeks out west or take a, uh, a nice long trip to Australia for a month and a half or two months without the support of the other forecasters. Because, you know, there's only a handful of us that have to be here Mm 24-7. And for lack of a better word, these guys are going to be picking up my slack.
4: Um, Last question. For your family, because you will be working out of the office in Australia, does that mean you get to at least communicate with them and stuff?
1: Yeah, I wouldn't. Okay. Uh, yeah, there, there, is, there is no way that my uh, three-year-old son or my uh, eight-and-a-half-year-old daughter or my 11-year-old daughter um, that I would be able to go out there and, and not be in communications with them. Um, I, you know, when I go out West, I, I am able to talk with them. It's a little bit different with the time change and it's going to be a little bit different with the time change in Australia, but I, I think that might work better in my favor. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I will be Skyping with them and talking with them and, uh, you know, it's uh, all of that is only possible because much like the support here at work, the support that I have at home, my wife picks up all of my slack and, and is able to, you know, change what I do back into what it was supposed to be done in the first place. Um, but, yeah, without her and without her support, this would never happen. And your initial question from earlier was, you know, how much notice did you get? I think in October or November, um, the question was asked of my manager, Ken Heydu whether or not the office would be able to support a dispatch for... Uh, six to eight weeks in the December, January, or January-February timeframe. Um, so he came to me and said, "Is this something that you know you you know as, uh, as an office, okay, the the, the leave at Christmas time wasn't going to happen for the one, but for the other, we should be okay to be able to do that." All right, let me ask John. And I said, "I think so, but I'd have to check with the boss." Yeah
4: love it <laughs> So then
1: I talked with her, and you know I would throw an Australia question in and, and you, s- you would see the fires on on the news all mm-hmm. the time you yeah. know at Christmas time and and you know so I'd interject an Australia thing in there every once in a while and you know nothing was said. I didn't know if it was if I would be going. Uh, I was just on a list that I was a potential. Then I saw earlier on that uh, some IMEs were out there and you know going through their stuff and and their uh, dispatches uh, to uh, to Australia and then things got a little bit closer and they asked, okay, would you be able to go? And I had already talked it over with my wife and yeah, we can do that. So now I've got to sit and spend a little bit of. not that I don't spend enough time with my kids but uh, a little more quality time and and get my three year old son a little bit more knowledgeable that it's going to be a little while because six weeks when you're that young is an eternity
4: but he'll know eventually
1: when he gets older that his dad is doing a helpful and big important thing and for my daughters too it's it's important what I'm doing is important. Uh, other people need us. I was telling my son that when the when you call 911 for the firefighters or the police, they come. They're important. You need them. I have got a certain expertise that somebody from another country is asking for help. I mean, how how awesome is that? But I tell him that, you know, I'm needed and somebody's asking for help and daddy's the one to go and help so hopefully that is ingrained in him and my daughters understand you know they may not necessarily like it sometimes and it's not going to be you know sunshine and roses but they understand that it's it's important yeah.
2: so thanks again for listening to that and of course we are wishing the best of luck to john now yes. that he is in australia hopefully everything's going smoothly for him um, we might even be able to catch up with him. He said we could reach out and maybe try to get a Skype interview. So hopefully we can give you an update um, on how he is doing and, and how everything's going.
3: Yeah, we wish him all the best of luck and uh, hoping he and everybody out there stay safe. This is a very volatile time of the year in Australia. They're in their summer months, so mm-hmm. that plays a big part into their bushfire season. Kirsty, just a quick question before we go. Was there any part of the interview that really stood out to you and had an impact um, when you had your moment to talk with John. I think what was uh, the
2: craziest thing to me is the fact that I didn't realize that he truly is in the middle of these wildfires. And yes, he said he works with the um, fire behavioral analyst. Like that's the person that he usually is, you know, kept safe, but he is responsible as well for his own safety. Um, And just kind of listening, like there is so much responsibility and pressure because, his forecasts are truly keeping firefighters safe but that's the whole reason why the incident meteorologist program was was started was to keep our firefighters safe our men and women and to use our weather expertise to really really help them um and that that stood out to me listening to him explain some of his experiences when he's been on different wildfires
3: yeah it was very interesting to hear all of the uniqueness that an Incident meteorologist um is as far as you know when it comes to the national weather service you don't think about that kind of um Responsibility mm-hmm. and training that would go into something so special and unique like that. As always, thank you for listening to Cloudy with a Chance of Podcast. We have so many other episodes that you can tune back and listen to from uh, conversations with people that work at the Storm Prediction Center. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last episode, we spoke with a climatologist yes. and talking about our planet and the warming. So if you want to be educated more on that, just go back one episode and listen. Always, you can send us some comments uh, through um, Cloudy with a Chance of Podcast there is the option to post a question there or rate us mm-hmm. through the podcast app if you have an Apple phone. Also, you can check out Cloudy with a Chance of Podcast on Stitcher, Google Play, whio.com. Kirstie, did this was a video version of your yeah. interview as well, correct? Yep. so it's also on our streaming app. You can uh, see that on our streaming app. That is if you own uh, Amazon Prime, Apple TV, anything that allows you to download an app to it. A smart TV. Just search and download the app there, and you'll see the video version of Kirstie's interview with John. Plus, we have several other vodcast mm-hmm. interviews on there as well. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.
0: Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe.